SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 45 with guest Jamie Thompson. So welcome. Our guest today is Jamie Thompson. Jamie is a freelance consultant working in and around SQL Server, more specifically specializing in SQL Server integration services and other associated BI technologies. He's proud to have been a Microsoft MVP for SQL Server since 2006, which he was awarded largely for his blogging activities related to integration services, although he has been known to ramble off into T-SQL, analysis services, reporting services, and the slightly weirder world of web data services. Jamie hails from Leeds in West Yorkshire in the UK, though he now lives from in southwest London with his wife, Helen. So welcome, Jamie. Thanks, Greg. It's uh, great to be here. I'm very flattered to be asked to come on. <laughs> great. Listen, what I get everybody to do, first up, is just tell us how, how on earth did you ever come to be involved with SQL Server in the first place? Okay. Um, I guess it all started uh, nearly 10 years ago now. Um, I got a job working in uh, working South West London, rocked up on the first day and got handed a, um, a SQL Server data warehousing textbook and said, okay, you've got two or three months, go and uh, uh, read through that and make sure you understand it all, basically. So mm. I went there thinking I was going to be uh, some sort of coder, writing, writing visual basic code or something like that. And yeah. uh, they gave me this textbook of something I'd never heard of. I thought, okay, well, let's see where this goes. So I guess that was the first thing. That was that was uh, using SQL Server 7 back in those days, and yeah. when OAP services had just been introduced into the product. You remember those days? Oh, indeed. I have often said I, th- I think that was a significant turning point in the product when that was added. Uh, I, I think if I look at uh, SQL Server 2008, I, I suspect we may have another one with uh, spatial data being added at this point too. But uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. certainly I, I think OLAP services appearing at that time was a, a, sig- a significant point. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, it was very interesting. And it, it all really stemmed from there. I, I remember back in those early days, sometime in year 2000, it was when I first got introduced to it, um, I, was, I remember having a, um, a conference call with a couple of guys from Microsoft I didn't know who they were, but I remember their names as being Len Wyatt and Dave Fackler. And I think those guys mm-hmm. are actually still around on the team doing pretty much the same stuff. So it's nice to see the same names it keep cropping up on these things. So It uh, is, actually, yeah, because it's, about... it's funny you mention that, because it, it tends at times not to be very common. Uh, uh, I must admit, I've, yeah, certainly involvement with the product over a period of time. It's interesting to see the the change of people involved with the product over time. So do you, do you find that um, in the period you've been involved, there's enough, uh, I suppose the one of the challenges with people changing, I'm just wondering if there's enough like organisational memory that flows from version to version? Well, yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I, I think it's, it's endemic within Microsoft, isn't it, that um, as uh, products evolve and, and new versions start to be worked on, then and new people come in. Uh, I think Windows is very much like that. The, the team changes uh, wholesale for every single new release. Um, there are people who who uh, stick around the SQL Server team. Um, I'm trying to think who, who I've known there for a while. Obviously, Donald Farmer is a guy yes. I always associate with the team, and uh, he's been he's been around six or seven years now, I think. Mm. Uh, but then there's other other people who were there right in the early days who who who've moved on, and I guess you can think of people like you and Garden and Gert Drapers who were who were uh, gone missing in action, as it were. And it's kind of a shame that those guys don't stick around. Yeah, well, I suppose. I mean, they're kind of around, but yeah, still in different sort of areas. Actually, uh, yeah. it was interesting. Uh, I've just come back from the past summit in uh, Seattle, and one of the most fun things that we did uh, was they had the book signing for the. 
the M- SQL Server MVP Deep Dives book signing, which was just a barrel of fun because we had, uh, was it 53 authors or something uh, for the book, but we literally had about 30 or so of them along this just a huge <laughs> uh, table. And it was interesting that all the people sort of came past and uh, got, you know, met, yeah. and met most of the authors and got their books signed and so on. Um, one of the guys that popped in, though, along the way was Richard Waymire, uh, again, an old friend. And again, he was yeah, very I visible in the Richard. teams and, yeah, sort of disappeared off into the data dude area for a while. But uh, he's certainly back in actively working in the tools area. But, but yeah, look, that uh, book signing, actually, I should just mention in passing, that was a barrel of fun. And, um, what was actually interesting as well, apart from all the books coming through with all the uh, the people that had bought them, uh, which thank you to everybody who did, because it, it actually sold out at the event. Uh, oh, what we also had was a whole lot of books coming through for Microsoft executives and so on. And uh, we had things like, you know, Bill Gates's book come through and Steve Ballmer's book and so on. And we're sitting there trying to, you know, think of something creative to write in their book. If you, <laughs> yeah, have, a, if you have a chance to write them a little message, what, what exactly do you write? So, yeah, that no, was mm. interesting. Good, good. Yeah, so. I just wish I could have been a part of it. I didn't get to go to PASS this year, unfortunately. It would have been nice to have been there and be one of those people in the line uh, waiting for my book to be signed. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Oh, look, I, uh, yeah, I mean, even though I'm involved with it, I, I, I have to say I think it's uh, it's probably the, the premier SQL Server conference that happens anywhere in the year each year and uh, anywhere in the world each year, and I, you know, I, it's one I wouldn't miss. <laughs> to be honest, I, I just if if I can in any way uh, avoid it. Although it was kind of funny that this year everybody was talking about the cost of travel and the cost, but I think ironically it was actually probably the cheapest year for travel ever, <laughs> you know, right. because there's so many deals because the airlines are doing it tough as well. So yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I was watching all the um, all the output from from the conference on mm. blogs and and on Twitter especially, and there was loads going on on Twitter. It was yeah. it was fantastic. I was at work uh, just reading the stuff that was coming out, hearing about all the announcements that were coming in real time. There was, there was people mm. that, <laughs> that wouldn't show up on Twitter, like Andy Leonard and and Steve Jones were talking a lot, and, and people yeah. like that. Um, so it really, yeah, I was really jealous I wasn't there. And then I found out that. Uh, Tickets have already gone on sale for next year. So yes, yeah. In fact, there's an today, early bird rate. I think it's nine ninety five or something. An early bird rate until yeah. Uh, yeah. sometime in January. So yeah. So yes, uh, people should get along next year, and of course next year it'll be a release year as well, which is always uh, uh, always makes it a bit more entertaining as well. In fact, yeah, just going back to what you were saying though about uh, whether you know every time they have a version, they're all always already working on the next version. I think one of the interesting challenges in this round is they're now into concurrent development of different versions, um, where they've got sort of R2 on the way, but also got SQL 11 being built at the same yeah. time, which I think is another interesting challenge for the team. Yeah, and and I think what we're starting to see happen is um, they're developing features for 11, um, but as they're getting fully baked, I, I think they're thinking, well, maybe we should put this in R2, and I can't think of an example, but I remember hearing about something the other day in the engine that's coming in R2, which was completely unexpected to me. I, I just started to think, well, maybe they were they were putting that in for 11, but it, it's ready to go, so why mm. not put it into R2? I can't yeah. remember what it was now. Interesting. Well, so just with integration services as a whole, what's I know one of the uh, obviously as you were learning, you you're one of the rare people that have uh, also documented your learnings in your blog, which is fabulous for everybody else who's trying to learn it uh, along yeah. the way. What what were you, what were the things you thought were the the toughest part of learning integration services? Um, I I I said pretty early on that. One of the most uh, difficult things that that, that 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 could be for someone trying to learn SIS is to have previous experience of DTS mm. uh, from SQL 2000. I, I think that understanding DTS was actually hindrance to learning SFIS because the two were just so significantly different. Mm. And in fact, I came to SIS with a little bit of a DTS background, but also um, I'd used a tool called Informatica in the past as yes. well. And there are a lot typically, more typically used with Oracle systems, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I, yeah, and back in the day, which is going back to 2004, I, I think I was using it against um, DB2 type stuff as well. Mm. So yeah, it's a, it's a big heavyweight tool, and and I remember picking up SIS from uh, I think it was a PDC build back in 
summer of 2004 and yeah. took a look and thought, well, this is nothing like BTS, but it's a heck of a lot like um, Informatica. So mm. um, that's when my interest really, really heightened and uh, it went from there, really. I got in yeah. touch with the aforementioned Donald Farmer, uh, Farmer earlier on. Um, got in touch with him and, uh, yeah, it went from there, really. I remember, I remember talking with a colleague of mine back in uh, 2004, a guy called Mick Horn. I worked with a Conchango and we, he, we, were, we were going through all these... Um, all this learning stuff for SIS and he was saying to me, okay, we're going to have to do the same for analysis services and reporting services and I was saying, okay, yeah, yeah, definitely, we'll get onto that in a month or so and uh, <laughs> five years later I'm still waiting to get onto that stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, the uh, the stage you're talking about there too in 2004, that was the point at which it had just suddenly changed names as well and uh, where it, it was going to be the updated version of DTS but... Uh, uh, I think they suddenly realised just how very different it was, and that it needed to have a different message. So, yeah, and that, that was um, that, that was a good decision to make. It's just a shame they didn't make it earlier, because if you look under the covers of the actual product, the the acronym DTS still turns up in heck of a lot of places. Oh, that's right. I mean, even just the, the fact the packages are .dtsx files, <laughs> and all the namespaces in the programming are all DTS dot something. Yeah, so that's right. Yeah, no, it's certainly everywhere. But the as you, what sort of things do you think are the given? Uh, quite a few people are coming from DTS and mm. trying to move across. What well, what do you think those big the bigger challenges are there? Well, uh, the the biggest hassle that people seem to have is is wrapping their head, heads around this notion of separating the control flow and the data flow. Mm. Back in DTS days, um, they they were pretty much the same thing, right? Um, there were all, there was one design surface and uh, the data movement was done in, in the same places where all the precedence constraints and things like that lived. So getting away from that was probably um, was probably one of the biggest challenges for people, I think. Mm. The other thing is is the whole is the data flow itself. I mean, it, it's such a fantastic piece of engineering, I certainly think, yeah. in any way. Um, and, but people who come to it with a DTS head on their shoulders... Um, have a preconceived idea of how it's going to work and, mm. and there were so many questions in the forums in the early days and actually still today that you could tell were, were being questioned by people who would use DTS and saying well I could do this in the old version but why can't I do it in, in SIS and, and it's, not, it's not a matter of saying well you can't do that anymore but you just have to turn your head through 90 degrees as it were, look at it from a different angle and say okay yeah I I understand what things are different and uh, mm. and why I need to treat this differently. Probably one of the one of the obvious ones is I think back in DTS you could you could um, set an attribute on a row, um, a conditional attribute saying ignore this row um, for for whatever reason. And mm. people were were asking, well, how do I do that in in SIS? I, I don't see an option to do that. Yeah. And the answer is to use a conditional split. But yeah. but people. Um, didn't twig that straight away, and that was just an example of mm. people having that difficulty. So, what's what's the advice you give if people have a whole lot of DTS packages that that they need to move uh, because you know they're they're coming from 2000? I, I think whenever I'm looking at uh, people upgrading from 2000 to 2005 or 2008, I must admit that one of the the main questions I ask them is just exactly how many DTS packages they have and how complicated, because that usually is one of the hardest things to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, back in 2005, there were there was somewhat of an upgrade path. Uh, the the team tried to um, put things in that would help that, but to be fair, they didn't take that very far. Mm. And and the simplest advice you can offer is, well, unfortunately, you're just going to have to build everything again from scratch in SIS mm. um, because the, the upgrade path simply wasn't really there. Now, having said that, um, since then, uh, one of our MVP colleagues, Brian Knight, has, has got, uh, got a tool which will actually help in that DTS to SIS upgrade mm. path. But, um, yeah, Brian from Pragmatic Works. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah. But I've never yeah. actually used it, I have to confess. Yeah, dtsexchange.com, yeah, would link that's to right. it. And... Uh, yeah, I must admit, I've heard nothing but good things about it for people migrating. The, I, I think probably the, the concern I have with migration of DTS packages to SSIS, though, is that I, I think that a couple of things concern me. One is uh, 
They typically involve an enormous number of embedded connection strings, which we'll talk about later, no doubt. Um, And the other thing is that it's a bit like I I remember when people were looking to upgrade, say, VB6 apps to VB.net, and the conversion wasn't sort of a very good conversion. But I found that every time that people rewrote the apps, they they ended up with such a better application uh, than the one. So I always sort of think it's, it's almost sort of be careful what you wish for because I think if you could directly upgrade them, you, you'd probably end up with a lousy integration services app that you'd then have to look after for a long time. No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just it's just a fact of life. Some things are better done by a human than a computer. And, uh, yeah, certainly the case when you're upgrading your DTS packages. It's, mm. uh, it, it, it's, it's unfortunate, isn't it, really, that... You invest so much time in DTS, and, and you know there are so many packages out there. And then you come along and build something which is a better product. So certainly, I believe it's a better product. So the people mm. might not agree. Uh, but the the, um, the migration path is pretty horrific, and it's mm. unfortunate. Yeah, I, th- I think certainly the design surface, as you mentioned before in DTS, I think it was usually a mess as well. Uh, yeah. I, I think it was a stroke of genius separating the, the control and data flow out. Uh, uh, or just, you know, it obviously occurred to someone and uh, and that was an in- incredibly good move. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And probably the other big thing I, um, I think about, when I when I look think back to some of the DTS program I was doing back in those days, um, just coding in loops. Do you remember writing ActiveX? Absolutely. That, in fact, it was the next one I was going to mention is that yeah. whenever I look at DTS packages, I mean, they're typically full of convoluted code to try and produce looping structures and things which are just there in the box in, in integration Absolutely. services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that, it, it's easy to take the floor each loop for granted, in a sense, mm. but it's, it's an incredibly powerful construct. Yeah, I think actually the the one that I use probably more than anything else is the uh, the sort of for each item yeah. type thing, and uh, yeah, being able to sort of point it at a folder with a bunch of files and say go go and do something to every file. That's just great. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting you mention that actually. One of the things which um, I think is, is a difficulty about SIS is sometimes that you've just got so many options for how you actually solve a problem. And uh, loading data from multiple files is a classic case because you've got the option, which you just said, which is to loop over a folder of those files mm-hmm. and pull them in one by one. So that's, that's one option. You've got the multi-flat file adapter, um, which you can just point out a folder and it will load all the files in that folder as if it were one. It will give, co- give you an extra column in the data flow saying um, which file every particular row came from. Or you can just build a data flow um has... Every single file, so it's a different circumstances, and and that kind of highlights um, one of the problems with that. Sometimes there's just so many ways of solving a problem that um, it's difficult to know what's the best one to do. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Actually, one. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Actually, one that I'd love to get your feedback on. I, I see two very different schools of thought for error handling. Um, one yeah. is, uh, if you look at the typical, typical DTS thing, people used to have do some operation and then there was always, if it fails, dive off and do this error code. And we can do the same sort of thing in integration services. But alternately, we've got the option to set an event procedure or an event surface instead, or I don't know if surface is the right word or whatever that we call it. Um, you mean the event handler? An event handler, yeah, probably the better yeah, word, yeah. Um, which kind of hides all of the event code out of the mainline code. Uh, yeah. But I've heard sort of pros and cons. Probably the biggest con I've heard people talk about is... Uh, the fact that it's not in your face anymore can actually tend to lead to confusion because uh, yeah. uh, someone had an example the other day where they had an error in a post-execute event handler. Mm-hmm. And so the whole thing would go through and look like it ran, but in the end it would fail. And they'd go, yeah. <laughs> what's going on here? So Yeah, no, no, I quite agree. They, they are quite dangerous from that point of view because if you take corrective steps within your event handlers, um, anybody else picking up the package might not probably isn't even aware those event handlers exist, and mm. and uh, from a maintenance point of view, that stuff's really difficult. So certainly, I I don't I don't generally take corrective procedures or corrective steps, should I say, 
in the event handlers for that very reason. Mm. It, and yeah, if, an, if an error occurs in my package, I want to know about it, and I probably want it to stop executed so that mm. I can come along and, and handle it later. Do you tend, um, if you had to but, even send a mail or something like that, do you tend to surface all of that in the control flow, though, or do you push it all in behind into an event handler? Yeah, that, that sort of thing I will put in an event handler. So logging mm-hmm. procedures, um, notification procedures, I think are safely tucked away in those event handlers. But the corrective steps that, that you might want to take would probably happen in the control flow, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, another one, uh, I actually asked people if there are a few things that... Uh, they wanted to ask you about, so I had, oh, had, a, okay. had a few bits of input. So um, sure. one was about what, what level of logging uh, you tend to like to have and uh, where you like to log to. Uh, okay. Well, where I tend to log to is to log files uh, rather than log into the database. Um, if I was to use the out-of-the-box event handles, that is, uh, sorry, out-of-the-box log providers. So... Um, what I actually did at my previous company, we put, put together our own logging framework with a dedicated schema that we, we actually logged to. And what we actually did was build event handlers within our packages that understood um, understood that logging schema. So we could actually put data in there and, and we could tailor that information appropriately rather than using the out-of-the-box log providers, which um, are a little bit limited. Mm-hmm. In roughly, what do you what do you think the main limitations are there? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm going back as I can't actually. You mm. <laughs> uh, fox me just because it's a, it's a while since I use those log providers. I mean, yeah. probably the main thing is if you use them, you get just a, a very very long list of events, which is very hard to um, very hard to search through and actually to find mm. the information that you're looking for is. It's pretty difficult, and you've got you've got to make sure that you log absolutely everything. Generally, or, or certainly yeah. uh, all the information warning and error events, anyway, to make sure that you're not missing anything important. But when it comes through with such a long list, then it's hard to find that stuff. There's no real structure to what's going on. So, so what I like to do is to have yes, a, a table of events that I log to and catch the pertinent information that that um, that I want to see, but probably link that back to a table which has um, uh, instances of each package start, stopping and starting, something like that. So you mm. can see um, which events occur from which package and things like that. Uh, the other, probably the other limitations is you, ju- you don't get all the information that you might want. So one, of the, one of the typical things I always like to get out of the packages, which you just don't get from blog providers, is um, durations of how long something's took to actually execute. So I want to know how long each of my data flows took so I can... I can uh, monitor over time if, if, the, if the amount of time that particular data flow is taking is increasing because that, that's mm. probably a sign of something that, uh, that you're going to need to address, right? Yeah, no, that's uh, And good. it's not really easy to find that sort of information from the out-of-the-box logging stuff. So I, I, I mm. tend to find that doing custom logging can be particularly advantageous. Mm. Look, another topic that tends to come up, I, I think for people moving, uh, probably the... Strong typing is the next thing that tends to cause people a bit of an issue, um, where we sort of moved from DTS where we basically had everything was variant and it was all kind of VB script uh, type objects, yeah. uh, where we've moved into a much more strongly typed uh, arrangement. And probably the biggest one I seem to find that tends to cause people pain is the uh, the idea that it wants to do everything with sort of uh, Unicode data inside the packages by default. Oh, really? Okay. I, I don't really find people complaining about that too much, to be honest. Yeah. Well, where I've seen it is uh, co- a common example is that if you take, for example, an ADO.NET provider uh, yep. and you just simply read data from a, a Varchar column and then you yeah. send it straight back out to a Varchar column, it comes up and complains that you're truncating the data, right? Okay. Because the the standard um, source actually pulls that out as nvarchar data instead of varchar data. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because we're using .NET types under the covers, yeah. right? And, and that all talks Unicode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the strong typing stuff is is um, is one of one of those which really polarizes people. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, there are obvious advantages to strong typing. I think people with a, a strong developer background uh, can can really 
put up the advantages of, of doing strong typing mm. and uh, the advantages of things like catching errors at design time rather than execution yeah. time, right? Um, but yeah, if you, again, it's one of these things, if you're coming from DTS, you're not really used to that world, and you find mm. things that used to work in DTS just, just simply don't work in SIS yeah. anymore, and there are good reasons for that. Um, again, I'm going to mention his name again, but I remember Donald saying in the early days, um, when people were complaining about this in the forums, he says, well, you know, you can come and look at our bug tracking database if you like and see the amount of people that complain about uh, loose typing and, and DTS. And, yeah. and the reason that we've done it in SIS is to, is to, is to try and clean up on those things, but there are obviously repercussions. Mm. And uh, that's unfortunate. Probably the other the other big complaint, I know that there's a, there's a famous thread on the SIS forum back from 2004-2005 sort of time frame, was uh, talking about the flat file source. And how if you, if you were loading in a, a file that had um, uh, multiple row formats within the file, i.e. a row may have different number of columns to the row beforehand, um, SIS simply couldn't handle that, mm. um, whereas DTS could. The reason for that... Yeah, it was, was a sort of ragged file type thing. Exactly, yeah. 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 There, there, were, there were things in place. There's a ragged, ragged write format in SIS, which kind of helps that, but... But it's not great because what what DTS would do, and correct me if I'm wrong, because it's going back a long time. But um, if if you had if, if a row didn't have all the columns it was expecting, DTS didn't care because um, it just read up to the um, to the row delimiter. Yeah. And it would see the row delimiter and say, okay, there's no more columns to come. I'll just go and read in the next row. But SIS doesn't do that. SIS looks for every single column that it's expecting and just just reads it in as, and, and doesn't and kind of doesn't um, isn't really aware of row delimiters mm. and, and the problem with that is, uh, is that things just don't go read, read incorrectly sometimes. Mm. And the, the justification for doing that, if you speak to a team, is well, it just makes it a hell of a lot faster because yeah. we don't have to read every single row to find the row delimiter to know what we have to do with the row. Mm. So it means we can read stuff in quicker, but. Yeah, pros and cons all the way, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, one of the the things that does tend to come up is we have the ability uh, in the control flow to build script script tasks, and we also have the choice to build uh, sources, destinations, and transformations in the data flow. Uh, At what point do you consider uh, creating a component to drop into the toolbox instead of using script? (laughs) Uh, this is an interesting one. I used to get ridiculed by, uh, by one of my MVP colleagues, a guy called Alan Mitchell, because I would always resort to script rather than uh, building a custom component. So um, uh, the rule is, is pretty simple. You know, if, if, if you're building something that's going to be reused, then it probably wants to be a custom component so that you can actually mm. reuse that thing, right? Um, I, but then you have to question, well, well how... Um, how proficient am I at writing .NET code? You know, writing custom components is a heck of a lot harder than writing script mm. components. Uh, it's just the way it is, unfortunately. You get all the all the scaffolding for the actual um, for understanding the data flow built into the script component. You, you don't get it when you're just building a, yeah. a, a custom component straight up. Yeah, so, there is. I was going to say there is a video uh, I remember, like a webcast up on the MSDN site. Uh, that was there for 2005 that showed you how to build uh, tasks to drop in the in the control flow toolbox and how to build uh, data sources and transformations to drop into the data flow and uh, yeah. I'm at, at least you know within within a, a single webcast they they had a reasonable you know I mean it wasn't ridiculously complicated um, mm-hmm. I often think myself I think it's kind of a it, it's where the the product becomes much more powerful once you start doing that. Because uh, a good example, like I was doing some work a little while ago with some uh, old progress databases. And, I mean, while you can start with an external connector and then you start doing, you know, oh, they, there's a question mark where it's meant to be a null and there's, you know, all, all, all these different bits of processing you need to do before you get the data... It, yep. It's just I don't know that I want that in every package. You know, <laughs> I think I'm better off to build like a progress data source and drop it in there and, and yeah, just have it already do all that stuff. So, yeah, no, 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 it certainly makes sense. When you look, pulling data out of legacy data sources, certainly, then 
it's definitely advantageous to do mm. that. It's just it, it it does come down to how proficient are you at writing .NET code and, mm-hmm. and how familiar are you with the inner workings of the data flow? Because when you're using a script component, you kind of abstract it away from things like uh, buffers and and yeah. uh, define them and all that sort of stuff. Um, and you don't really need to worry too much about whether it's a synchronous or an asynchronous component. And yep. if it's an asynchronous component, is it partially blocking or fully blocking? Oh, actually, um, well, well, okay. Let me play. Ac- well, it's not acronym police, but ter- terminology police. So yeah. yeah, let's roll through. So async and sync components. Yeah. Okay. So um, the the technical definition of synchronous component is where um, the output from the component <clears throat> is using the same buffer. Um, as the input, okay? So it's better to talk about this in terms of examples, really. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the derived column component, for example, is a synchronous component because data comes in and it comes out the other side and it looks, the data as it comes in looks exactly the same other than columns that actually get added to uh, added to the data flow by the derived column. Yeah, you got a row in and a row out, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, actually, that is that is the other um, um main thing about synchronous components. You get the same number of rows going in as, as are coming out of it. So asynchronous components are very different. Um, they generally take in um, a lot of data and perhaps do some aggregation on it. And the, aggre- the aggregate component is a, is a classic example of an asynchronous component because mm-hmm. the shape of the data that comes in is not the same as the shape of the data that comes out. So people talk about the shape of the data a lot. What they mean by that is the metadata of all the columns or the metadata of the, the data flow is different before the component as it is to after the component. And that's, mm. that's the main uh, characteristic, if you like, of, a, yeah. of an asynchronous component. Are there, there many third-party components that you tend to use? Uh, I know uh, you mentioned Alan Mitchell and I suppose Darren Green and the guys. They've got, uh, well, what's it, SQLIS.com. Um, that's right. Yeah, where there's a, a bunch of materials up there. Um, are there any other common ones that you tend to use? As a, um, sort of third-party plug-in ones, I generally don't. If I'm honest, mm. um, I'm, I'm trying to think to to, to uh, things I've been doing recently, and I haven't been using that many third-party mm. components. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, I don't tend to use many. I, I've used. Yeah, I, I do tend to suggest if people are thinking of building something that they probably should pop up to SQLIS.com or one of those sites and just have a look around first <laughs> before, oh, absolutely. before absolutely. doing it. And I think also if they're looking at building uh, components again uh, to go into the toolbox, they're probably better off to start with something that's uh, in the vicinity of what they need uh, out of one of the examples and then work with that instead of trying to do it from scratch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of, one of the uh, one of the ones that I have used, and it's one of Alan and Darren's, is um, the row number transformation. Mm. It's very simple, but it, all it does is, is put a, a new column into the data flow, um, and it uh, which includes a constantly in, um, incrementing number. Yeah. So it's very, very useful. It's incredibly for, uh, useful. Data warehouse and yeah. Um, and, and you know it's something that people ask for a heck of a lot, and mm. uh, they, they've got a component that does that for you. So the other option is to write some code uh, in a script component. So you know, mm. what do you want to do? Yeah, oh, it's nicely reusable when it is a component. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, listen, that's probably a good point. We'll just take a break for a few minutes, and uh, okay. we'll come back shortly. All right, Greg. Cheers. As well as community resources such as this podcast. SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break. So, Jamie, is there a life outside SQL Server? Yeah, uh, there's a bit of one. Um, I'm married to Helen, as I think you mentioned in the intro. Uh, we've been married about a year now, so I'm um, in the first throes of marriage, as it were. Um, aside from that, I'm a big sports fan. Um, so cricket, football... Uh, I'm very, very much into it, but m- my real passion is actually um, a sport which 
isn't very big in many parts of the world. It's, it's bigger than the north of England. It's big in Australia. That's rugby league. Ah, uh, rugby league fan. Very good. Yeah, yeah I, I grew up in Brisbane myself, and of course that was uh, a very, very big sport there, and it, uh, it yeah. certainly is in Sydney as well. Uh, interestingly, yeah. Melbourne, uh, they've been endlessly trying to get a uh, bigger following, and even though the team down here has done incredibly well, it, it just tends every year. It, uh, lately it's just sort of winning the competition and so on. And uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a very strong comp, and I, I do remember... Certainly in the 80s when I was growing up, I saw an awful lot of games between Australia and England. That was pretty common. Uh, and yep. certainly the uh, rivalry between Australia and New Zealand is very common as well. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting that the, the rugby union rather than rugby league is certainly uh, gaining in popularity locally too. And I think it's because yeah, they, yeah. there's a big competition with a whole lot of different countries involved. And it's one thing to have each city playing each other, but it's probably more intense when you have all the countries playing each other. Yeah, exactly. That's where rugby league pales into, into insignificance, really, against rugby union. We just don't have many countries playing it. And, and internationally, I'd, I'd much rather watch rugby union than, than rugby league. Mm. It's a much better spectacle. But, um, yeah, at club level, it, uh, yeah, I'm... I'm a, I'm a devout follower. And my team is doing rather well at the moment. We've won the championship for the last three years. So, mm. um, quite and is that and that's Leeds? Yep, the Leeds yep. Rhinos, that's right. Yeah. I think Melbourne are coming across at the beginning of 2010 to play in the mm. World Club Championship. So yeah, well, that's right. Probably, yeah, the Melbourne Storm, yeah, who won the local competition again this year. Yeah, a strong side. That's, so right. that's good. Yeah. yeah, so league, yeah, certainly not that... Co- but as I said, yeah, it was interesting watching the rugby union now where as it, uh, it just makes a totally different competition, you know, where you know, Australia's playing like Fiji or New Zealand or South Africa or people, and, yeah, it, and, and it's just a, a regular competition, but suddenly it's, it's between all the different countries instead, which is insanely interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I love watching rugby union at uh, international level, but at club level, it's just not got the same interest for me. Mm. Yeah, no, indeed. Oh, well, certainly league uh, is still a, a very big sport here, but uh, I'd say still the Australian uh, Aussie rules, the Australian football is uh, uh, still, for most of the country, still bigger than uh, what uh, what we have with rugby league. But I mean, yeah, it's certainly oh, it's right? it's a close second. Yeah, uh, I'd say uh, the next one down. I mean, soccer here, uh, or what they call football in the in the UK. Uh, yeah. is is certainly you know still well further down as a third type uh, type thing and anything yeah. below. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the way it is in Australia, I guess. I mean, Aussie rules is not something I'm familiar with mm. in the slightest, apart from the shape of the pitch, which yeah. is oval. If I'm, if I'm correct. Yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, large. It's a very large field, and has there's a lot of players on the field and. Uh, several umpires, and it's a, it, it's a big spectacle, actually. It, it's really quite something. Yeah. Uh, in fact, quite violent. Uh, yeah. No, well, I had actually not as not as violent as league, but uh, yeah. Oh, really? I, okay. The the thing that I found amusing, actually, uh, I for a while there, I had a, a baseball club that was um, formed within an Australian rules football club, and they were famous because in the Guinness Book of Records, they had the highest first grade. Uh, score that had ever been uh, done in Australian rules, uh, and they had literally okay. won a game four hundred and six to nil. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I always oh, remember right. thinking, you know, in, in uh, with the coaching and stuff I used to do, I used to used to try and think of what what is it exactly you say to a team at half time when you're two hundred and something <laughs> nil down? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Demoralising isn't really the word, is it? <laughs> It'd be like, can can we get a point? <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like a cricket score off in the first inning. <laughs> yeah, it does, yeah. Uh, listen, next thing I wanted to cover off with integration services, though, is configuration, because I think that's probably... Uh, if I look at migration from DTS or even people just building new uh, integration services packages, there are already many, many options as to how you'd store your configuration and deal with it. And yeah. what's what's your recommendations? Um, I've kind of changed over the years, actually. I've, mm-hmm. I've never gone down the route of storing configurations in SQL Server. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure why. I, I, I was always quite um, okay with putting things in in um, 
into files and being able yep. to manipulate files. And I was always quite happy doing that. So I've generally gone for the um, configuration file option. Mm-hmm. And that's served me pretty well. Now, on top of that as well, um, I always used to recommend using um, indirect configurations as well, which is where uh, the location of the configuration file is stored in an environment variable on the machine. Mm-hmm. So that means you weren't hard-coding the location of the configuration file into your packages. It yeah. sounds like a good thing, but obviously you, you are hard-coding um, the location of the environment variable, so you have to ensure mm. the environment variable is on the machine and things like that. So I guess, I guess it comes down to how many, how many moving parts, as it were, do you want to actually have in your mm. solution? Because if, if you're using indirect configurations, you've got the file, you've got the environment variable, and you've got the package. And that's, that's three things that you've got mm. to take care of in, in your deployment. And is that really uh, the way mm. you want to be going? But generally, that's, that's what I always used to recommend. And, and generally, that's what I use now. Mm. Um, having said that, um, another option which I've, I've started going down uh, the route of is um, to not use, not define configurations at all within my package. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, um, pass in the location of your configuration files from the command line when you actually execute the package. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you're aware of this. Mm. There's um, a conf option on DTXEC yep. and DTXEC being the, the, uh, the command line tool for executing our packages. Mm. So what you can actually do is tell the package where to go and get its configurations from. And you don't need to, the package doesn't need to know anything about that at mm. configuration time, which at the sorry, at design time. I think that's that's really advantageous because it means that your packages are a lot more portable. You can pick them up and take them wherever you want, and all you need to change is is the command line that you're using to execute the package. Mm. Um, so so I, I like to go down that path these days. So associated with that as well, there is the set option of exec as well, which means you can take any property within the package. Sorry, well, that's, that's not totally true, but most properties within the package can be set using the set option of BTXX, and again, that mm. makes packages very portable. Mm. Yeah, I suppose the, the point we need to make is that it was very, very common in DTS packages for people to hard code all sorts of connection strings and things, and that, that I must admit, in doing migrations, that has often been the bane of my life, find, finding all of those things uh, that that yeah. have been embedded in the packages. Um, the other the other time I find that that's caused significant issues is uh, where people have gone on to use um, the DT uh, exec options that allow us to sort of run existing DTS packages. And what they did is they thought they had modified all of the connection strings, but they had missed some. And they ended up with some of the old servers and some of the new servers all being online at the same time. And then when they ran their packages, it was actually hitting both old and new without them even realizing that. Um, So for that reason, what I've tended to suggest to people going forward is that if they used a different set of service accounts for the new system, yeah, yeah. when they do the side-by-side, you just tend to avoid all those problems. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, um, one of the things that's always advocated is making sure you're using a completely different um, security model, well, not security model, but different security accounts on, on your different systems to make sure that uh, you never run the risk of, of that actually happening. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, particularly as a, yeah, I think with these sort of side-by-side installs, it's it's so important that they have totally different accounts, yeah, when you're doing that. Yeah. Actually, one of the the other options we've uh, been doing in some of the um, in, in work I've been doing lately, uh, what we've actually been doing is the only configuration we've been storing is actually the uh, the address of where the configuration server is, uh, and then we've right. actually been using a SQL box that effectively we go out query it say we're actually running in test or production or we tell it the environment as well Um, but all we have is a config that says the server's over there and then it says this app this environment and then it actually gets back all of the details which we then sort of actually populate into variables and then we've been using property expressions to go through and assign those um to the things, uh, and and that way there's kind of like no config stored in the package at all. Um, have you? Got, yeah, do you yeah. think that sounds reasonable? Or 
No, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm sat here nodding uh, as you're saying that. Yeah, that's definitely a very good idea. I love what you're saying about using property expressions as well mm. to make sure that um, that things are getting set in the right place. But there are a lot of advantages to um, storing connection strings and variables, actually. Yeah. Um, probably the main one is that you can actually pause your package uh, during execution, or certainly can if you're running in the design environment anyway. And mm. You can actually watch the values in those variables change. Yes. So as, being, as your package is executing, you can actually see, you can actually tear in on what's going on. You can't really do that very well if, if the actual values are getting yeah. directly on on the properties of the mm. objects themselves. But yeah, I, I really like the idea of, of putting connection strings into variables and then letting them flow out throughout the package. Mm. The, the other th- I've been using, sorry, go on. Yeah, I was going to say, the other thing that's good about that is if you have child packages too, being able to sort of pass them to the, the package that are children as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and how would you do that out of interest? By a parent package configuration? Yeah, basically, yeah, and picking it up from a, a, a parent variable. So. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, which, which is which is a great, great way of doing it. Now, it's interesting you say that because um, the method I talked about earlier on of using uh, set and conf options uh, of DTXX work pretty well if you've just got a single package. However, um, they're not particularly suited to um, when you've got lots of child packages mm. because, unfortunately, the execute package task within SIS doesn't have anything uh, which does the same as the set and conf options of DTXX. Mm. I think the execute package task actually needs a lot of work. It's, it's pretty limiting what you can actually do with it. Um, so what you need, so in, in that circumstance, you, if you're using set and conf from the command line, you've then got to use a different mechanism, probably parent package configurations, to actually pass your values through into your child mm-hmm. packages. So you're mixing and matching the ways that you do things, which is not 100% consistent. Mm-hmm. I mean, it works fine, but you know, if, if you are, if consistency is what you're after, then and perhaps uh, you want to go with a different route. Mm-hmm. So many yeah. options. In yeah, the, as I said, the the reason I kind of like it is have if you have a single configuration server, then literally in the different environments, you just spin the thing up, and then you know, I mean, nothing changes, you know, at all. So that's a, uh, and then somebody has already pre-configured, you know, where the things are to point to, which I find yeah. kind of useful. Mm. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I'll be honest, I, I, like I said earlier, I've never used configurations that actually reside within SQL Server. Mm. And I guess the reason for that is I like I like the fact that you can run SSIS without SQL Server even existing. Yeah, okay? no, that's absolutely uh, which which is advantageous. Mm. Um, if you if you store in your packages in SQL, mm. Server, sorry, if you store in configurations in SQL Server, that's no longer the case. But if you've got a SQL Server instance anyway, then not a problem. Yeah. Look, the the other reason I kind of like that is that at least in SQL Server, I can also have, uh, again, being maybe a bit anal, but I can have uh, specific data types for my parameters where, you know, as soon as I start having an XML configuration file, people can put, well, you know, literally whatever they want in, in those co- yeah. In, yeah in those values. Yeah, yeah, very true. And you can query stuff, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, I do find that useful. But I suppose, look, when you're building a package, uh, but I suppose, look, when you're building a package, um, one of the questions comes up, do you tend to start with like a pre-built framework? Because uh, I, I do see a lot of people starting pretty much from scratch all the time, and yet the ones that seem to be most productive seem to have some sort of framework that they start with. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely go down that route. Um, I mean, the simplest way of... of Perhaps going down that path is to use template packages, right? Mm. Um, and this is, I think, this is something that not that many people know about. It's possible to um, have a, a template package uh, which all your packages can can use as a base, and then you, that template package could have all the the event handling and and the variables in there that you would typically need in every single package, and, and that can that can be advantageous. Although there are, there are a couple of downsides to doing that as well, I must admit. But if, you, if you're going to go the whole hog, then and using a framework, uh, for want of a better word, is a good idea. And, and that I spent a lot of time, uh, not so long ago, putting together a framework that we use on, on one of our projects. And it was it was based around what I would call a metadata database. Uh, that word metadata is overly used in, in our industry, right? Yes, but oh, yes. Essentially, 
That's essentially what it was. So it, it would store um, definitions of the work that the packages had to do, if you like. And what, what we actually found was we, what we were doing, we were taking the control flow out of the packages and putting that control flow into, a, into our metadata database or metadata repository. So we, we, we could say things like, okay, I've got this list of packages now. I want you to go and execute them in a, in a certain order or something like that. Um, or, or perhaps you want to turn off a package or just go and execute a single package. Um, what you could do is just turn, uh, just flip, flip a flag in the database and say, okay, I don't want that certain package to execute tonight for, for whatever reason. And there are, there are good reasons why you might want to do that. It certainly makes it uh, easier to, if you, if you want to turn things off in your control flow, it's actually quite difficult. You have to go in, edit a package, and if, if that package is in a production environment, it's not particularly easy to do that, and it's, it's probably not something you want to do. Whereas if you've got that control flow stored in a database, um, then it makes it a lot easier to do that. Mm. Now, I will say that, when when uh, I was defining this, and we're going back a few years now, actually, we had some heated discussions, shall we say, <laughs> in my various project teams about whether this was the right thing to do or not. And I, I'm I'm of the school that says definitely it is. Well, there's another mm. other guy in particular, a good friend of mine, but he he vehemently disagreed. He thought everything should go in the packages, mm. um, and there are good reasons for doing both. The other thing, the other reason I, why I like to have uh, definitions of all my control flow in in a metadata database is because you can link all the execution history back to that metadata, right? You, you can say, if you're using a custom logging framework, you can say, okay, this particular event occurred in this particular package um, and it was executing at this particular time and it's part of this overall package, this overall yeah. um, collection of work that needs to happen. So mm. you get that nice sort of um, click through of, of, of why things were occurring. And putting that, that kind of structure that I was talking about earlier on, if you can define your work and then log against that definition, then it becomes a lot easier to work out exactly what's going mm. on. You've got a good history of it. But, you know, pros and cons. You've got to set this stuff up and it takes time and it's not mm. easy. You know, and we spend a lot of time in doing it. Yeah, it's kind of, I, I do see people kind of reinventing the wheel every time they start another one. And, and you think, yeah, a lot of these things you really do need to to spend some cycles and think about where you're going to do all this stuff and how you're going to do it uh, so that it, it does apply to all your packages. Do you, what, do you, oh, what do you use for package locations? Do you tend to store them in the file system or in SQL Server? Yeah, yeah, I, I store them in the file system. And, and mm -hmm. going back to something I said earlier on, that's, that's a whole separation from SQL Server, right? Yeah. you store them in the file system, you can execute your packages without SQL Server even being, um, being present, which... You know, again, it's it's an opinion whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or not. Mm. Um, the other the other reason why I always like to use packages is, um, sorry, why I always like to use a file system is because when you're developing, typically all your packages will exist on the file system, right? So, yeah. do you want to use a different um, way of storing your packages at, at uh, in production than you do when you're actually developing? Mm. Um, personally, I don't. I, I like to keep things as consistent as possible. Mm. So that's, that's another reason why I yeah. do that. So if you think about, if you're, if you're executing a package using the execute package task and you were storing your packages in SQL Server, um, you'd have to say, you'd have to have some way of telling your packages, okay, you're now running in a production environment, therefore you need to go and get the packages that you need to execute from SQL Server. Mm. Whereas if you if you're developing, you say okay, now you're in the development environment, so you'll go and find them on the file system. Mm. So you, that, that's that's quite difficult. So, to do. do you tend to then use the de deployment utility that's built in or not? No, yeah. I've never that's what I thought it. you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I've always you know, uh, there are, I mean, there are various ways of doing it. You know, typically, most people just move them manually, right? Well, mm. one thing I've done in the past is. Is um, used. Uh, have you ever heard of uh, Wix? Yes. Windows XML Installer, I think it's called mm. something. Windows Installer XML. Yeah. So we've actually built um, MSI packages. Packages is an overused term again, but MSI installers, should I say, mm. that would actually take our um, the output from our um, 
integration services projects and package them up into one of these installs and you could take that installer and deploy it onto whatever server you happen to be um, mm. deploying onto. Um, it will take care of your configurations and all that sort of stuff mm. as well. And that, that was quite nice. And, yeah. and doing that, I mean, you could, in, you could include it in a continuous integration build as well if, you, if you're working with a team. Yeah, that that actually does raise the the thing I'm sort of wondering in there though too. What do you do in terms of source code control? Um, well, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, Team Foundation Server, mm-hmm. um, and most projects I work on, uh, I find that I'm using that. The project I'm working on at the moment, we're using Subversion, the open yep. source source control system. Um, so I'm, um, I wouldn't ever recommend. A particular source control system, but I would hundred percent recommend that you use at least one of them. Yeah, right. Um, Probably, I, look, I the biggest challenge I see with the integration services packages, though, is the lack of a decent package comparison tool. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I knew I knew you were about to say that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, because yeah, I mean the thing is, like I mean, like normal source code, we can go, you know, I change one line of code, I can see what changed in this version. Where unfortunately, with integration services, it's basically you know that package changed. Um, that's it's really, I mean, and I've seen people, uh, I think Apex or somebody has one where they, but they're using a very basic XML comparison tool. But I mean, yeah. you've only got to yeah. just touch it to end up with XML that looks totally different. So, uh, yeah, uh, they're, they're, yeah, I think there really is a need for that. And it, it the, to me, a lot of the thing that's missing in the product at the moment is that whole application lifecycle stuff, like uh, being able to do that. But but even other things like uh, static source code analysis or check-in rules or, you know, being able to build some of those things in relation to uh, in relation to integration services, you know. So it's the sort of you know, checks that, you know, you haven't hard-coded connections or, you know, just just all those sorts of things. Uh, uh, it would be nice yeah. if there was something a little more built in for, for doing that. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. I remember um, going back two or three years now, there's a guy who works in, in the .NET community, he's a very, very well-known guy, I think he's called IND Rayan or something, I'm, I'm not sure how mm-hmm. to pronounce his name, I'm sure somebody will correct me, but he wrote a blog once about using SSIS and it was a real diatribe. He, he really tore the product to pieces and a lot of his concerns were around things that you just said. said there is no support for diffing a package mm. um, which, and people who come from, from the .NET development side of things are just completely used to this and, and they see mm. things in SSIS which um, is just completely alien to them or they just mm. see things missing. Mm. And yeah, I completely agree that all these things Deployments, logging, um, uh, source control systems, uh, being able to differ packages—they're all—they all do come under this this same banner of how do you actually productionize your databases? Mm. And like you say, the application lifecycle management. There needs to be, um, yeah, there needs to be a lot of progress in that area. Mm. Um, I, I don't—I don't think I'm, I'm getting, getting into too much trouble by saying you might see some things changing in SQL. <laughs> Indeed. Listen, um, also, I think some people are not aware, too, just it's not a multi-instance application as well. Um, That's right. Has that caused you an issue at all, or has it been okay? In... I don't think it's an issue as long as, as, long as you're aware of it, right? Mm. Um, typically, we, I don't work on projects where we, we have our development and, uh, and test environments, for, for example, on the same mm. machine. Uh, we typically have different machines, but... Um, people do, right? They have yeah, um, absolutely. UAT, UAT instances on, on the same machine. And, mm. uh, and to be honest, I've, I've never had to work in that environment. So mm. I can't speak about it. I mean, there are ways around it. You need to make sure that your packages know which environment they're executing in. And and, and there are things which, which mm. are associated with that, such as the location of all your packages. Mm. That's the obvious one. Um, yeah, actually, the, the other allied topic that comes up is the, uh, the idea that it's not a clusterable application either. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've I've heard people mention that, and I think I, I do remember seeing um, a blog post about about how to cluster the SIS service. Yeah, it's a, it's there. actually quite funny. There's a uh, there there is a knowledge base article that basically says, "Don't do this," but is <laughs> here's, here's how you do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's very strange, but I, I think that's part of the misunderstanding comes about because. 
people don't really know what the um, SFAS service is actually for. Mm. And the truth is, it, it frankly doesn't do anything. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, um, again, I might get into a bit of trouble here, but uh, <laughs> I had a conversation about this with a few people just uh, three or four days ago, and we had input from someone in the SIS team who said, um, yeah, when we were actually putting the product together a few years ago, uh, we, we were told by someone from a different department that we should have a service. Mm. Um, so we put a service in the box, um, even though it doesn't actually do anything mm. of any note. So, um, yeah, it's there, and uh, yes, it doesn't do anything. But again, that, that might change in the future. Yeah. Actually, the other, the other one I did want to um, quickly mention is just the whole idea of checkpoints and uh, restartability. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I thought yeah. I should throw that one in because uh, uh, the, the well, I, I was preparing material on integration services performance tuning for the, uh, the master's uh, certification classes. And yeah. I must admit the feeling I got uh, when the topic of uh, checkpoints and restartability and so on, uh, well, certainly checkpoints, when the topic came up, it was almost, I got the feeling like the team really just didn't want to talk about that at all because uh, it, the experience was probably less than uh, optimal. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a few problems with it. Well, fancy two that really stick in my mind. One, it's very hard to configure restartability when you're using checkpoints. Mm. It's kind of a nebulous subject, and you have to get, you have to tweak the knobs in just the right way to make sure that your package is going to restart from exactly the point at which um, you want it to restart from. There, there are some strange properties of the package that most people never touch, mm. called fail package on failure and fail parent on failure, yeah. something like that. And you need to get these things right if you want your package to restart from the point of failure. Mm. Um, and this stuff just it isn't documented anywhere. So that's that's one of the problems. The other problem is sometimes checkpointing just doesn't work. I've definitely yeah. seen examples where um, a package has stopped executing for, for a good reason. There's an error. The error is corrected. You've set all the properties correct. Like I said, the fail package on failure property. And you restart the thing and, and it does something completely different. And it's, mm. it's a bug in the product. There's no yeah. doubt about it. So... It's a it's a nasty nasty world to get into. Yeah, I, I tend to suggest to people to just don't go there. <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah, well, um, there you go. <laughs> what what I do tend to like myself, I I try and build packages so that they're uh, how would you say uh, restart aware themselves. So you know, I mean, you know, instead of moving a huge amount of data from one place to another, I I would rather build a loop that said, while you're not finished, let's do a chunk within a transaction, and then let's do the next chunk, and so on. And and then if you yeah. have to restart it, well, it just knows where it's up to, and it knows what it still has to do. So yeah, absolutely. I call that artificial rollback points. Yeah. Um, so points in your in your ETR execution where you know that if something has gone wrong, then you can easily go back to that point and start from there. And again, um, this is what I use the, um, the metadata database for, mm. but for flagging when a certain stage in the execution is completed. Um, mm. And then you can, the, the packages can read that, that metadata and say, okay, I know that I have executed before and I failed because some flag in the database isn't set. I know I got to point B of ABC, so I'm going to start from point B again. Hmm. And again, this stuff is difficult to set up. But unfortunately, um, you're kind of resigned to doing it because hmm. um, yeah, yeah, you don't really have any other option, which is, which is yeah. a shame. I, I, I don't think I there's think. any automated way to do this. I, I think you do have to design your packages for restartability right up front. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, there's certainly no reliable way. Uh, like I said, there's a bug in the product at the moment, which means it simply doesn't work. Mm. Um, and, yeah, you, you need to do it, unfortunately. Mm. Well, listen, that's... Another, another, yeah. Sorry, just, just on that, one thing I always like to do, and I'd be interested to get your view on this, is, um, and it, it's, a, it's a practice I took from a guy who used to work with at my last company. Um, but what we always do is publish everything into a data warehouse under a single transaction. Yep. Therefore, you've got that whole, um, that easy point of rollback. Mm. However, if you're using SSIS and you're using Dataflow to do those insertions, well, it ain't so easy because yeah. um, 
using transactions in SIS means you're using MSDPC. Mm. And that's a whole other world of hurt. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, must not, have, it, not it, it almost feels heretical a bit, but I, I tend to think, uh, I tend to use an awful lot of execute SQL tasks. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I just see that whenever people are talking about SSIS and designing things, they always seem to be spending all their time in the data flow doing massaging data and stuff like that. I, I have to admit my personal preference is to get data from a source, pull it in with the minimal constraints I can possibly get away with at all into some yep. other location, process it in bulk in with SQL statements before doing anything else. Yeah, and, you know, most projects I work on, we do exactly the same thing, I have to admit. But, but then again, there's nothing wrong with doing that. And no. most people who, who work on SIS projects come from a SQL background, so... What are you going to do? Are you going to use a whole new technology and spend time learning it? Or are you going to use what you know? Mm. If you know T-SQL, just use that stuff and it works yeah. fantastically well. No, indeed. Listen, that's pretty much getting us up to time, Jamie. The, uh, the other thing, I suppose, is what, what else is coming up in your world or where will people see you or uh, have you got anything you're writing or what, what's happening? Uh, yeah, um, uh, the main thing got coming up is um, SQL Bits Conference mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks. Yes, in um, fact, I was I with uh, Simon Sabin and uh, uh, James, James Rollin-Jones on, uh, on Thursday. We were having a discussion about SQL Bits. So, yeah, no, yep. that's coming up. And so that's in uh, in Wales this time, isn't it? That's right. It's in two weeks. I can't remember the date, but it's two two weeks from today, and today is the 7th. So, yeah, 21st of of um, the weekend of the 21st of November. It's in mm. Newport, I think. So um, I'm spending this weekend getting some demo material prepared for that. Um, I, I just want to, if we can talk about SQL bits a bit, I mean, mm. some people outside the UK might not know much about it, but it, it's now the, I think this is SQL bits 4 we've got coming up as the fourth. Five, conference. I think it is. Uh, oh, is it five? So yeah, yeah, I think last one was SQL well. bits goes fourth, I think I remember. Okay. <laughs> That's right, okay. So, you're thousands of miles away, you know more than me. Right? <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's now the, the premier SQL conference in Europe, and, it, and it's down to the hard work of guys like Simon and James Rowan Jones, Martin Bell, uh, Chris Webb, who I know you've mm. had on the show, Alan Mitchell, Darren Green. Yep. I might have left someone out, but those guys have just done such a fantastic job in putting mm. this conference together. Um, yeah, it's, it's becoming a big event now, and I can't wait to get there in a couple of weeks. Mm. Well, good luck with the show, Jamie, and thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure, Greg. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it, and... Uh, I listen to the show every every time you do one of these things, so I look forward to more in the future. Great. Cheers, Greg. See you later. Yeah.